0: 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple." Uh, William Shakespeare once said this, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by, by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Marcus Aurelius, famous Roman emperor, once said this, what then, will a little fame distract you? Look at the speed of universal oblivion, the gulf of immeasurable time, both before and after, the vacuity of applause, the indiscriminate fickleness of your apparent supporters, the tiny room in which all this is confined. The whole earth is a mere point in space. What a minute cranny within this is your own habitation. And how many and what sort will sing your praises here? As human beings, we're always rebelling against the idea that our lives lack significance. And yet the things that we experience in this life often communicate to us that we're insignificant. Of course, the biggest of that is death. Death communicates to us that we're insignificant. Life is temporary. And it's always been temporary, but there's been things in our world, in our culture in particular, that communicates that temporary nature of life and that can be kind of disconcerting to us. So our relationships are temporary, are often temporary. The idea of a lifelong relationship, even with a spouse, is increasingly seen as foreign, maybe even odd. The idea of a lifelong friendship with anyone seems like a pipe tree. Our work is temporary. In 2019, there was a study that was done where they observed late baby boomers who were were, um, from their working ages from 18 to 52... And they found that men had, on average, 12.5 different jobs, and women averaged 12.1 jobs. Our work is temporary. We move from place to place to place, from project to project, and we invest in things, and then they deteriorate. They go to waste. Uh, Each year, I'm reminded of that about this time. Uh, I, I usually start plants inside. About February or March, I'll plant seeds and then uh, you know, put them under lights and grow them. Then you get to March and, or, or May, and you have these little seedlings, and it's time to put them outside, and you're going to have to harden them off, and then they get developed and rooted in the ground. And it seems like almost the time that they just start going and flourishing, that the weather starts turning, and then they die. Life is temporary. Our possessions are temporary. things don't last like they used to. I remember a few years ago, I was looking for an appliance, a a refrigerator or something, and uh, I was talking to my uncle, and he was sharing how uh, he purchased this washing machine. It was like 25 years prior when he was in college, and that washing machine was still working perfectly. And, And now you buy an appliance, whether it's a refrigerator, washer, dryer, if you get 10 years out of it, you're doing great. It's like I I used to have this old refrigerator in my basement, and, like, the new one would come and go, and the old one just kept kicking, just kept kicking. But things are not made to last today. You Think about houses. I mean, how how long do you expect your house to last? I mean, this building that we're in is a historic building. It was built in 1894. And I think about that, and it seems archaic to me, 1894, that this building was built then you think about the pyramids and the pyramids are still standing after forty five hundred years now there's a lot of factors involved in that why they lasted that long part of it is the arid climate and the lack of humidity but also the ancient egyptians intended for them to last forever Uh, one scholar named donald redford professor at penn state university says this about the ancient egyptians they were always saying this is a This is a construction for eternity. Forever and ever creeps into their vocabulary constantly. They constructed these pyramids in such a way that they would go on into eternity, and they have stood the test of time. They've been around 4,500-plus years. Things today aren't meant to last. Years ago, if something broke, you'd repair it because it's cheaper to repair it than to buy something new. Today, we buy things new because it's cheaper to buy something new than it is to repair it. I just bought a computer two years ago. It's was having some issues with it, took it to the store, and basically they told me, we can't do anything about this. There's nobody that can really do anything about it. You're probably better off just buying a new one. Things are temporary. And all of these things scream insignificance. If this, these things are temporary, why invest in your relationships? They're going to come to an end. Why invest in possessions? They're going to fail. The moth and rust rust are going to destroy them. Why invest in your career? Your career is soon coming to an end. Yet in the words of Carl Hung, man cannot live with a meaningless life. All of these things are screaming insignificant that our lives don't matter, and yet we try to make significance, bring significance to our lives. Uh, There was a study that was done recently uh, and they observed, uh, asked millennials, it was a LinkedIn survey, they asked millennials if they were able to, if they would take a p- reduction in pay, if, it, if they were in an organization that aligned with their values, if it was doing something that was, was meaningful. And almost 9 out of 10 of those millennials said that they would do that. They would take a pay cut to do something meaningful, 86%. Uh, They also asked that question of baby boomers, and the number that would take that pay cut was only 9%. People today are looking for meaning, and yet with the absence of a biblical worldview and a kind of a framework to live life and the fragmentation of society, sometimes it's hard to find that purpose. And so people are left wandering. Uh, The famous psychiatrist Viktor Frankl once said this, Yet when a man can't find a deep sense of meaning they distract themselves with pleasure. When a man or a woman cannot find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure, and that's what we see in our culture today. Researchers studying labor statistics discovered that uh, men in 2015, particularly young men between the ages of 21 to 30 years old, spent about 12 percent fewer hours working Uh, than the cohort in 2000. From 2000 to 2015, there was a 12% reduction in the amount of hours spent working. Now, there are a number of reasons for this, uh, but researchers wanted to kind of delve what were the factors that were causing this. And so they delved into the study, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics Annual Time Use Survey, which it reports how Americans spend their times. And they compared uh, the years 2012 to 2015 compared to 2004 to 2007. And between those periods, they found that men increased their leisure hours about the same, time, the, uh, the same amount that they dropped their working hours. And how they filled their leisure time was Interesting. The time spent playing video games and computer games made up about 75% of that increased leisure time for men in that age demographic. Younger men actually increased their recreational computer use and video gaming by nearly 50% between 2004 to 2007 and 2012 to 2015. Young men who were unemployed on average spent 520 uh, hours per year on recreational computer or video game times, more than they spend on non-computer related socializing with friends. When a man or woman can't find deep meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. That's why pornography use is at the highest it's ever been in the history of the world. Drug, alcohol, food addiction are pandemic. Uh, People often think about millennials or Gen Z as being lazy. And, And part of that label may be correct, but I think Laziness is just a symptom. It's the next generation lacks purpose. They lack a reason to get off the couch and stop playing video games all day. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul talks a lot about purpose, about significance. And specifically, he's going to talk about three different people, different types of people who inhabit the church. And as we look at these different types of people, we're going to see what Paul has to say about significance and how we can live lives that matter. In short, he shows us how to live lives of significance and how to avoid lives of meaninglessness. So he talks about three different people in the church today. Uh, the first is adversaries, he said, these adversaries are those who destroy the church. Paul uses the illustration of the temple. He talks about the church as being kind of like the Old Testament temple. The foundation of the church is Christ. It's, and he says, I've laid that foundation. So in that illustration, those who are adversaries would be people who undermine that foundation. Who, by their actions or by their words, cause people to believe in Christ a little bit less. They shake people's confidence in Christ. These adversaries took many different forms in Paul's ministry. In the church of Galatia, it was the Judaizers. The Judaizers would go to the Gentiles and say, Hey, uh, I know you love Christ. I know you're following after him, but you have to follow all the Old Testament law. You have to be circumcised or else you're not a real Christian. They're undermining people's faith in Christ. In the context of 1 Corinthians, this may have been uh, happening in a number of different ways, but one way that was happening, we've talked about several times in the last few weeks, is that people were forming these factions, saying, hey, you follow Christ, that's not good enough. I follow Paul. Paul's the one who's giving all these cool, mysterious teachings, or another person like, I don't follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and they're dividing the church and causing people not to focus on the foundation which is Christ. People who are adversaries are rabble-rousers. They cause trouble. I've seen this many times in in church ministry, seeing people that, you know, it doesn't matter what context they're in, it seems like destruction follows them. It doesn't matter which ministry they're in, it doesn't matter what context they're in, there's trouble that follows them. Oftentimes, adversaries are even in pastoral ministry they may be charismatic likable confident they gain a considerable following maybe be on tv or on the radio and then inevitably there's some scandal and then people are left wondering is christ real was that what this preacher proclaims really true or is this all just a scam if you're an adversary and hopefully nobody here is but if you're an adversary, your mind is not on the things of Christ. You're trying to undermine the foundation of Christ. And for those who are adversaries, Paul gives a stern warning to repent. He says, "If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him." Now, some people have used this passage and uh, talked about the temple as being our bodies. Now later, Paul is going to use that example that the temple is uh, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but here he's not talking about that. He's talking about, he said, the, you in this passage is plural. He's talking about the temple being us as a church, the church being uh, the temple. And Paul says, if anyone got, destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Jesus goes even further in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. He says, that, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It seems a little bit harsh. I mean, I've heard that. It's like, that's kind of scary, Jesus. But you think about it, and how would you feel if someone was harming your child? How how would you feel if someone was not only harming your child, was getting your child to turn against you? Saying your father, your mother, they don't care about you. They don't don't care about you. I, I really care about you. And then they take advantage of your child. I've, I've thought about that prospect before, and I don't think Pastor Matt would exist anymore if someone did something like that to my son. I mean, there's just this parental concern and rage that happens if someone harms your son. It's like you can harm me, I can defend myself. My son, my child, he's defenseless. I think that's how God feels. That's why he takes it so seriously because he doesn't want his children to be harmed. He doesn't want people to undermine the foundation of Christ. He doesn't want people to undermine his relationship with his kids. Now, I think it's important first to point out some people, you know, have a tender conscience, and some people have a seared conscience. And uh, when I was growing up, I had a really tender conscience. And so, uh, difference between me and my brother, my brother would, uh, if there was, my mom and dad said to do something, my brother would kind of, you know, discuss it and argue with them, um, and maybe have to be punished. Uh, me, if my parents looked at me the wrong way, I would be, you know, in tears almost. Some people have a tender conscience. Some people have a seared conscience. And so some sometimes people listen to a message like this or a, a point like this, and they're like, huh, am I an adversary? Is God going to destroy me? And they hear these stern warnings, and it's like terrifying to them and overwhelms. It's like, and you go back and kind of look at things in your life and like, did I destroy God's church or did what I do harm God's church and I don't think that's what Paul or Jesus is talking about at all. He's talking about people who are not believers. They're not people who are trying. They're not people who are following after Christ who have a relationship with him. They're people who perpetually cause trouble in the body of Christ. It's not about an action. It's about a pattern of lifestyle. And really when that happens, a person just shows themselves to be children not of God, but children of the adversary because they're doing the same thing that Satan does. Satan divides. Satan tries to undermine that foundation. On the other hand, people who are actually adversaries probably wouldn't realize that, probably go right over their hat, hat. probably would have excuses why uh, they have caused trouble. It would be the pastor's problem. The pastor had an issue. This other person did this to me or did that to me. problem is with others, never with themselves. But for those of us who are believers, uh, I think this passage and this first point offers us a warning. We need to be careful when it comes to adversaries and how we relate to them. And there are adversaries in the body of Christ. They come into the body of Christ. Jesus said this in Matthew seven fifteen to 20. Here's the thing about adversaries. Adversaries do not look like adversaries. They do not wear a shirt with a Satanist logo on it. Adversaries look like friends. Adversaries do not look like wolves. They look like sheep. They may be likable, personable. They may show genuine or appear to show genuine interest in you. They may flatter you. And we need to be wary of that. Now, there's some people who... Uh, are closed off and they would never share anything with anyone in the body of Christ. Other people are, on the other hand, are just, you know, they share all of their problems with everyone. And we need to be careful that we don't share things with other people too quickly. Because if you share things with an adversary, they're going to use that to destroy you. They're going to use that to undermine your faith in Christ. And of course, we want to strive for openness and authenticity, but we need to just be aware that there are adversaries in the body of Christ. Just because someone has the label of Christian or just because they're in the church does not mean they're on the same team. And Jesus recognized that and he talks about uh, the the fact that they'll be there and he doesn't tear them out because he doesn't want to pull up and and destroy the, the flock in the process. So until we get to the kingdom of God, there will be adversaries that come into the body of Christ and we need to be worried of that. So that's the first uh, group that he talks about, adversaries. And, and those people who are adversaries, it says God will destroy them. They will not have significance in the kingdom of God. Then he talks about distracted Christians. Distracted Christians are those who uh, build with wood, hay, or straw. These people are Christians that are standing upon the, the foundation of Christ, but what they're building their lives upon, the, th- the ways that they spend their time are not significant. These people are Christians. They go to church. They trust in Christ, but they never share their faith. These people are Christians. They follow Christ, but most of their leisure time is spent on their own pursuits rather than following after Christ. And Paul talks about the day of judgment and how uh, the day of judgment is a day of proving. uh, proving. And uh, in the ancient world, they talk about the day of judgment being a time of fire. Now, When he's talking about fire in here, it's not a a literal fire, what he's talking about necessarily. It's about the fact that everything is going to be exposed. Some things are going to last. Some things are not going to last. And for the distracted Christian, they're putting their faith in things that are not going to last to varying degrees. These are not necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily evil things. They're things that don't have eternal significance. And it's to varying degrees because you think about hay and straw. Hay and straw might not make it through a year, might not make it through a day. You put down hay and straw on the foundation, it might blow away the next day. And so things like television, things like sports, things like uh, hobbies, things like that, they're not bad things. It's not bad to engage in those things, but they're not things that are going to last. Then you can have other things that are like the wood. I mean, the wood is going to last for some time. Things like a career, things like financial stability. Those things are going to last for some time, but when we get to the kingdom of God, they're not going to be the matter, ultimately. And Paul says this. He says that uh, if any person's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So imagine that you're sleeping in your bed one night. The smoke alarm goes off. You wake up, get your bearings, and you look out. And there's flames all around you. And yet there's an exit, a clear exit. You can get out. And you're able, your family is able to go through that exit as well. What are you going to do? You're going to get out of that house as fast as you can. You're not going to be going to the basement and pulling out a suitcase and going through and finding all of your favorite things to bring with you. You're going to get out of that house as fast as you can. And the good news is you're going to be okay. The bad news is you're going to lose everything that you own. The same thing is true for the distracted Christian. The good news is they're going to be saved. They're going to spend forever in heaven. That's the good news. The bad news is they're not going to have anything to show for their lives. They're not going to receive any rewards. They're not going to see the fruit of what they did in their lives. There's going to be salvation, but there'll also be regret. John Piper describes this tragedy with the following famous illustration. I've shared it before, but years ago, but I think it bears repeating. He says Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Piper says this that's a tragedy. He says, with all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, say to the Lord, here it is, Lord. My shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my bone. Such is the tragedy of the distracted Christian. We get to the end of our lives and we don't have anything to show Christ. Christ anything that we did of eternal significance. We spent the years of our life and our energies on things that don't matter. There'll be salvation, but there'll also be incredible regret. That's the distracted Christian. The third group that he talks about is the purposeful Christian. Those who build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Purposeful Christians are Christians that make a difference, live lives of significance, that they're not only saved, but they produce fruit in their life that goes on into eternity. Now, of course, the, the main point that Paul is talking about here is that these things, gold, silver, precious stones, they're going to make it through the fire. They're going to last. And I may be reading a little too much in this, maybe, maybe not, but I think the illustration is helpful anyways, and the point is the same. But you think about these things, and you think about the gold, silver precious stones and they're used to adorn the temple right i mean if you were to build something you wouldn't go to home depot and go to the lumber aisle and say hey i would like a two by four of pure gold you wouldn't do something like that even in the ancient world they wouldn't do something like that gold silver precious stones they would be used for adornments to decorate the structure. Now, if you were going to build a house or have a house built for you, what would happen? You'd have a builder that would come in, and they would lay the foundation. They'd put up the framing walls, put a roof on it. They'd run electrical lines, put siding on the outside. They'd put heating lines throughout. They'd put up drywall, put light fixtures in, paint the house. Well, there's one thing that they're not going to do. They're not going to hang up pictures for you. They're not going to take pictures out of their basement and put them on the walls of your house. It's something that you have to do. You're going to put up pictures in your house. Maybe you put up pictures of significant events in your life. Put up a picture of your wedding day. Maybe your graduation. Maybe your kid's kindergarten graduation. Maybe pictures from a vacation. Something fun that you did. Something exciting that you did. And you put up all these pictures in your house to adorn your house. In a similar way, God has laid the foundation. Paul says, there's one foundation, it's Christ. You can't change that. You don't want to change that. The foundation is Christ. And I think our calling as Christians is to adorn that foundation, to put up pictures inside the temple of God. What are those pictures that we put up in the temple of God? What do those pictures look like? It's a picture of a man and a woman who've been faithful to one another for 30 years. Who show people the love of Christ. Who demonstrate to the world what Christ is all about. It's a father who loves and sacrifices for his wife and child. Shows people the sacrifice of Christ. It's a mother who loves, respects her husband. Raises her children in the Lord. It's a man who chose to give up pornography because he loved Christ more. It's a single adult who honors God with their talent and treasure. It's a senior adult who disciples the next generation for Christ. Those are the things that matter. And Christ is calling us to invest in those things that matter to hang up pictures, so to speak, around his church of lives that are, have been transformed, of people who are doing things that matter. And Paul says that if, anyone's, uh, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. There's a reward for doing the things that matter. And we don't know exactly what that reward is going to be like. Uh, maybe it's going to be increased uh, authority, increased responsibility in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's just getting to see the fruit of our labors, to see how much impact our efforts had when we get to eternity. So the question I'd like for us to consider uh, for just a moment today is as we look at our day today, as we look at our week coming up, as we look at the next month, as we look at the next year, how much of our time is spent doing things that matter? How much Our time is spent doing things that will make a difference for eternity. Now, I've heard messages like this before and read the Bible uh, and heard challenges like this. And often the first place we go is all right, we just need to spend all of our time sharing our sharing the gospel, sharing our faith. And that's the only thing that matters for eternity, is getting souls into the door of heaven. Now, I don't want to minimize. The, the, the emphasis that we should place on sharing our faith with those around us. Uh, it's a very important thing. It's a requirement God calls all of us to do. It will make a difference for eternity. But I don't think that's the only thing that makes a difference for eternity. See, the problem is when we say that that's the only thing that matters, that's the only thing that makes a difference for eternity, that means that most of our time is spent wasted. Not even by our own... Not even by our own choices. It means all the time we spend at work doing menial labor is wasted. We can do a lot of things that make a difference for eternity. It's not only soul winning. Developing our relationship with God. As we develop our relationship with God, we're getting ready for an eternity with Him. It's choosing to love those around us. And as we love those around us, allowing that to form our souls and become more like Christ, that's getting our hearts ready for eternity. It's choosing to love people even when they don't love us. Even when we don't see a salvation decision. So we, all, we always hope for that. We want that to happen. Sometimes we don't see that, but God calls us to love those around us. It means caring for the people that God cares for. Caring for the poor. Caring for the broken hearted. It means raising families in the Lord. It means encouraging people who are struggling, encouraging them to keep going, keep up the good fight, to keep fighting the good for faith. And here's the thing: it's often not only what we do, but how we do it. I mean, you might say to yourself, "Well, what can I do for Christ?" I mean, I, I work this. Menial job, do this repetitive, uh, repetitive things in my job. Then I get home and I'm wiped out. Don't have time to go and do these great things for the Lord. I would like to. I just have to provide for my family. I'm at work all day. I, I don't have any choice. I can't do anything for Christ. Or some people might say, you know, maybe a, a mother raising children might say, I don't have any time to do things for the Lord. I mean, I'm spending time changing diapers spending time chasing them around bringing them to soccer practice taking them to school doing all these things what can i do for christ that's what satan wants us to believe satan wants us to believe that the things that we do don't matter and when he gets to us to believe that then they don't matter see we can go to work and you know just do it to punch the clock just to get some money so that we can spend it on ourselves and if we just do that that's our mindset our work isn't going to matter. It doesn't make any difference for eternity. But we can look at that differently. We can look at today, God has given me the opportunity to build relationships with my coworkers. God has given me the opportunity to show the love of Christ to my coworkers. Today, God has given me the opportunity to demonstrate the excellency of His grace by doing a good job in my work. Today, I get to do my job as if I was doing it for the Lord. Today, as I deal with this difficult circumstance, this difficult task that I have, God can form me more and more into His image. God can allow me to trust in Him more and more. And when we have that mindset, our work matters. It doesn't matter what we're doing. Wherever we go, it will make a difference for eternity. Same thing is true with raising a family. You know, you could go through all the things of raising a family, and if you're... Uh, not being intentional and allow Disney to disciple them, then what you're doing doesn't really make any difference. It's kind of insignificant. But when you raise your children in the Lord, teach them to delight in Christ above all things and demonstrate that in your life, there's nothing that could have more eternal significance. It's not just what we do, it's how we do it and what mindset we approach the things that we do. Satan wants us to believe that the things that we do are insignificant. Pastor Rico Tice tells a story uh, about how somebody came up to him after, uh, at a funeral. And he said, this lady said, Rico, do you know what a, f- a-, a failed life is? Or do you know what it looks like to experience failure? Rico said, No. And she responded and said this, Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. It's wasting our lives on things that are not bad things in themselves. They may be even good things. But things that are not going to stand the test of time. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up yourselves for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Ladies and gentlemen, we have some pictures to hang up in the house of God. Pictures of people who treasure Christ above anything else. Pictures of people who do the things that matter. Do things that are going to ripple into eternity. That's what ca- Christ calls us to do. And that's our goal. So that we get to heaven one day and Christ would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you allow us to make a difference in this world. We know you don't need us. We know you could do whatever you wanted without us, but you choose to allow eternity to flow through us. That the actions that we take do have significance. And it doesn't matter what those actions are. Even if it seems menial, even if it seems ordinary, the things that we do can ripple into eternity. Lord, help us to never buy into the enemy that our lives are insignificant, never to buy into the lie that nothing we do could make a difference, but help us to take each day, each month, each year with intentionality that we'd ask you each day, Lord, what do you have for me? What would you have me do? How can I make a difference? How can I do what matters each and every day? Thank you for your love, Christ. Give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to focus on the things that matter. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.